one and two and three and four and. this tune, The Wedding March from Mendelssohn's A Midsummer Night's Dream, incidental music to Shakespeare's play. The count-off I gave was not to start the music. The length of the phrases of the tune itself is four counts long. If you keep counting with it as it continues, you'll hear that it's in fours. One, two, three, four, one. It is not at all the case that the mind is in any way unused to the labor of differentiating, reordering, then readjusting into categories and subcategories and further divisions still, chunks of acoustical material, be these auditory phenomena, words or music, or even unpitched sounds, according to what linguists think is an embedded grammar innate in us. This natural facility of apperception alone would not suggest that it is not subject to syntactical stress ever, or that necessarily the least economical, considered from a cognitive perspective, distribution of material will aid it. All clear? Let me try it again. Music and speech are easy to follow if they're in clear language and sentence structure. Linguists think we have an innate sense of grammar, which might help us understand music too. Regardless, the arrangement of thoughts matters. Say it simply if you can. You don't want an unnecessarily complicated syntax, multiple dependent clauses, and extra words even when you're reading, but certainly not when you're listening. It's been said more than once that the analogy between music and language can easily go too far, but I think it's too useful to be dispensed with for many issues in music, beginning with clarity of structure. This episode is the first of a series where we're going to develop some ideas mentioned in episode two, which I called the sound picture. In that episode, I listed the fundamentals of music with which I made a rough analysis of the waltz from Puccini's La Boheme and a few numbers from other operas as good examples of their compositional use. These next episodes are deeper looks at each of the fundamentals, beginning with this one on dynamics, or loud and soft. But before going into it, there's a very important preliminary question. If a piece of music is 20 or 30 minutes long, how is the sound organized for this length of time? How does it progress from one moment to the next? And what guides our ears through it? Can we get at something like a fundamental grammar of listening, where 10 or 20 minutes of music is not just that many minutes of various sounds on pianos or violins or orchestras, 
but a single argument along which we can understand how those sounds meaningfully link together and follow the progress of what's being essayed. Every one of the elements of music contributes something to this understanding. For an overview of them, I recommend hearing episode two if you haven't. Particularly the second half of it will give context to the following episodes. For this series, at least, each episode will be a little cumulative. So if you've just discovered this podcast, it's not that you can't jump between episodes, but I'm privileging the sequential listener just slightly. So, how is the structure of music made clear as it progresses? And this is crucial since the audience can't rewind in a concert the way you can back up a paragraph while reading. We have to be able to measure time while listening, and it's good to remember that whatever allows us to do this, by definition, must be what the composer thinks on some level, because time is the same for the composer as for us. Classical composers generally assume a count of four as a basic unit of structure in time. The symmetry of four counts, which you can feel even without counting, provides this clarity. Sometimes this is referred to as the four-bar phrase. The important word there, though, is four, not bar. It's not always a bar on the page. Whatever you want to call it, four-bar phrase, four-unit phrase, four-count phrase, it's the length of time in four skeletal stresses. In other words, if you were to dance to it, which is the best way of figuring out where the basic phrase unit is, you would feel four heavy counts. The melody usually begins with your one count and sounds kind of complete on the fourth or right before the next one count. Like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Even though this is instrumental music, you'll hear the melody takes a breath at the end of each of its four counts. These are, of course, the places you take a breath, whether you realize it or not, if you're singing it. One, two, three, four, breath. One, two, three, four, breath. The four-bar phrase is the musical version of a clause in English. It might be a full sentence, but it usually isn't, like here in Mendelssohn's Wedding March. Because if I stop it after the first one, No, that needs an answering phrase, doesn't it? Ah, that's a full musical sentence which gives you the same feeling of rest as a complete sentence in English. As you can hear, the evenness of the stresses lets you predict or expect, to some extent, the length of the next phrase. In music, a complete sentence, which is usually two phrases like this, sometimes more, is called a period. If we now pay attention to the phrases as we count the beats, We'll notice how they group into periods, and how the periods group together to form a complete musical thought. 
One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Next period. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Next period. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Next period. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Next period. One, two, three. Four, one, two, three, four. The section we just heard had six periods of roughly two phrases each. All of this is only to acknowledge what your intuition already knows. If I didn't count, it's not like you wouldn't have sensed all that. In the same way that you understand the grammar of your native language without having studied it. If you can swing to it, breathe with it, or feel it start and finish naturally, it's because there's symmetry to it and symmetry to you. And because Mendelssohn's fundamental assumption is a phrase unit of four counts. This is so common we can treat it as the building block of classical music. Count with the music you listen to, and you'll see how many famous tunes are organized into four-bar phrases, which is one of the reasons why they're immediately intelligible. In addition to Mendelssohn, Bach also starts with... One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Then his four soloists, the violin, oboe, flute, and trumpet, each take a turn playing a period consisting of the first four-bar phrase by the soloist and the second answered by the orchestra. Violin. One, two, three, four. Orchestra. Oboe. Orchestra. Flute, orchestra, trumpet, Beethoven opens a concerto finale with one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Tchaikovsky can say in phrase after phrase of four bars, one, two, three, four, 
One, two, three, four. And a new idea comes also in pairs of four. One, two, three, four. And even the transition back to the first tune is in fours. One, two, three, four. Tchaikovsky has a special gift for four-bar melody. One after another, I mean just constantly. One, two, three, waltz. begins most of his symphonies in an easily recognizable four count. One, two, three, four. Finally, even Wagner, at his most revolutionary, writes an unforgettable four-bar phrase. One, two, three, four. Although this tune is complicated in many ways rhythmically, but not in a way to obscure its four-bar structure. Of course, I don't mean to say that classical music moves only in multiples of two or four, there are perhaps as many famous and not famous tunes also in six, three, or two bar phrases, but four bars is a standard to orient your ear to. We'll discuss all these differences of irregular phrase lengths in an episode entirely devoted to rhythm. For now, it's enough to know that like metered lines in poetry, there is a rhythmically predictable length the music is coming through. To see that the phrase length is what helps us measure progress in time, remove it. Without this predictability in the phrase length, the music becomes background, yoga, elevator, or mood music. 
If you won't put on the wedding march while performing sun salutations in yoga, it's probably because it's too structured rhythmically to be background. There, maybe your breath or the poses provide the rhythm. If you wouldn't put it on as mood music on a first date, where the flow of the conversation might structure the night, a festive wedding march might be intrusive, rhythmically and dramatically. And this difference points to something else very important to form. The structure of periods decides what's beginning, middle, and end, or what's tension and relaxation. That means what's consonant and dissonant is largely created by phrase and period rhythm. A composer might obscure the phrase length either deliberately for suspense or just out of incompetence to hide a lack of substance, like so many academics whose work reads like the sentence I gave you before which was quite hard to write, honestly. The biggest obstacle in writing drivel is having a clear idea in your head. It's a lot easier if you're actually bloviating. But interestingly, the main problem with it is the obscure, chaotic rhythm of its thoughts, where the main clause is buried in extra ones. I'm not a linguist or anything, but it seems to me that an opening like, while it is not at all the case that the, is already tiring because it's ten syllables and you still don't know what the sentence is about. But then you're keeping negations and other language scaffolding in your mind, waiting for the operative clause, while still being bombarded with new information. I bet by the end you stopped caring because the fatigue of trying to reorder all of it, literally putting it into the right rhythm in your mind just wasn't worth it. In music, this comes across as those moments where the music, quote, isn't going anywhere. It's not clear what's consonance and dissonance, what's going to and what's coming from something. It might still not go anywhere, even with four-bar phrases, but at least no one has any trouble following it. The main subject, object, and verb are at the beginning of the sentence and close together, as it were. Generally, like great writers, the masters get to the point quickly, if not instantly. How long does it take before the, quote, subject is clear in this example? Right away, two phrases of symmetrical length, four counts each, and its rhythm indicates what sort of momentum the music is going to have. In Mendelssohn's Wedding March, there is an introduction, but notice it has a four-count structure too. In fact, it does for the opening phrase what my counting did at the top of this episode. One, two, three, four. It's not just a throat clearing. It actually articulates the length of the phrase coming. But can you actually hear how long that trumpet fanfare is going to be when it starts? Listen again. Not really, right? You don't know that it's going to be four bars long when it starts. You only know that in retrospect. You just know something big is going to happen by the fact that it's quickly growing to a louder dynamic. 
What makes it exciting, what allows it to be exciting, is that it's at a pace you can count. You can measure that it's getting louder, and what follows is both instantly and lastingly memorable. One, two, three, four. As you can only appreciate your favorite author's books sentence by sentence, you can only appreciate music by listening to it period by period. Bear this in mind as we go through these episodes looking at each element. We have to start by looking at how composers write their periods. That's the place to look for the musical innovation or the new idea. If a composer wants you to notice something, he might put it in a prominent place in the phrase. And if he wants you not to notice something, he'll sneak it in somewhere while you're hearing something else, or when your attention has relaxed for a moment. The more we get used to listening to periods, the better we'll understand what the composer's up to. Now, to dynamics. Loud and soft seem obvious. As you've probably guessed, much art and even genius has been lavished on the where, how much, and timing of dynamics. We do well not to take even this element for granted, particularly how loudness and softness, whether it's sudden or gradual, is timed by phrase and period. And this can get interesting. In the last episode, we made a distinction between two ways composers achieve dynamics, by indicating that something be played at a softer or louder volume, or getting softer or louder volume by writing fewer notes or more. You can have four string players get quieter together over an eight-bar period, say, versus having all four play at the beginning, then only three, then two, then one, over the same eight counts. We can expand the distinction now. In the first case, the composer puts it in the hands of the performers and tells them what volume change he wants. In the second, the composer is altering the texture to get the volume almost automatically. For this reason, I want to call the first type external dynamics, because the change of volume is not in the design of the music, so to speak, but external to it. You could disobey the composer and play the period getting louder if you wished, since all four players are still playing. The second case I'll refer to as internal dynamics, because the change of volume is in the music's construction. The texture has dwindled from four players to one. You couldn't play that louder without contradicting the music's sense. I'm sorry to coin terms. Richard Feynman once said that if you know the name of a bird in several different languages, you still know nothing about the bird. In effect, that knowing the name of something doesn't constitute knowledge, nor does coining a term automatically create knowledge. But I think this shorthand neatly separates these two kinds of dynamics. For the purpose of listening, the important difference between them is texture. A whole string section playing softly is a soft with a thicker texture than the soft achieved by only a solo violin. Outside both these types, though, there's a conceptual dynamics which is philosophically interesting. This is the volume suggested by the music's character. 
is the line and the rocket's red glare from the American National Anthem loud or soft? Or consider the opening period of Bach's B minor Mass. God, God, God have mercy, mercy. Does Bach have to indicate how loud you should sing and play that? It just wouldn't make sense at a volume other than as loud as you musically can. The topic, Bach's interpretation of the words, which is clearly a screaming up at the heavens, the way he set them to an expanding register, the questioning, upturning melody at the end of the period, the saturated texture, all of it is so cosmic it can't be overdone. It'll take everything you give it. The louder it is, the more convincingly it's begging God's mercy. There is no way of adding any notes to it. Everyone's already in. But the character of the music says, this is existential human pain at the edge. Contrast that to Beethoven's Fur Elise. Like the Bach, it's a case of external dynamics because all the shades of loud and soft have to be played by the pianist. texture is at its thinnest. It's rarely more than two notes at a time, one in each hand. This minimal use of notes is what gives the piece its introverted beauty. Beethoven can't possibly write fewer to get softer, and had he written more, it would have changed its character. Thickening the texture would ruin the intimacy of it, so he leaves the much subtler effects in the hands of the performer by writing play louder with crescendo, or play softer with diminuendo. But in fact, Beethoven wouldn't have to indicate any dynamics here, any more than Bach would have to indicate them at the start of his Mass. The concept and character of the phrases and periods decides this well beyond where a performer's choice comes in. In other words, the right dynamics are suggested so strongly by the other elements that they'd be heard by the mind if not executed for the ear in the performance. What goes into creating this conceptual dynamic is the interaction of all the elements we'll be covering. Let's look at some examples of internal and external dynamics. One of my favorites of the first type is right at the start of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony.
Interestingly, it pauses at the end of its opening four-bar phrase before going on. One, two, three, four. Does that mean the opening phrase is a full period? It doesn't sound complete, but it's an end. What comes after is as much a beginning as a continuation. Follow the phrases. Where does the next period sound like it comes to a rest? Beethoven seems to have written the periods so that they don't close. Did you notice the four-bar regularity you could follow before disappeared into a loop of repetitions? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four? Is this a phrase, or a period, or both? The melody here is only a repeated snatch. It's not a melody that takes a breath every four bars like it did before. With the symmetry gone, how many of them do you count? Aren't there so many of them that it feels unnatural to be counting anyway? You could continue counting to four, but then you'd be counting instead of listening. The music itself is not doing four bars anymore. If you're feeling the phrases by intuition, you'd lose count. What does Beethoven mean by this? There are ten iterations of the motive. The amazing thing, when you stop to think about it, is the sense of flow it maintains. How does it manage to sound so soothing and not disruptive? You'd think it would be obsessive or monotonous. How does it not sound redundant, especially with an asymmetrical length like ten? Well, the arc of the loud and soft gives it shape. They don't even seem like repetitions exactly. They're more like associative characteristics. Footsteps, perhaps, like somebody walking on a hill or a curved landscape coming nearer than turning away. If you could stop a concert at this point and ask a neighbor to describe the music, they might give you an imagistic response like, it reminded me of the country or the sunrise. Or they might give you a descriptive response like, I heard strings and it repeated and got louder and softer. Both reactions are informative even though neither is aware of periods. In this case, we know what Beethoven intended because he titled the movement cheerful feelings awakening on arriving in the country. But the untrained ear instinctively understands what Beethoven's done. He's made a period out of playing the same snatch many times, getting louder than softer. Remove the dynamic change and you have flat repetition, like a broken record. You could say Beethoven is teaching a lesson here and hiding it in plain sight. You can make a period by manipulating the dynamics alone.
Before, it was by the length of the four-bar phrases that you were trying to hear the period. That allowed you to follow the phrases almost by intuition. There was no difficulty. But at this point, the phrase dissipates into repetitions. The only thing changing now is the volume. In order not to lose your place, to measure whether you're in the beginning, middle, and end of something, Beethoven's forced you to listen to the dynamics. Or to put it another way, he's let the dynamics decide the phrase length. Your attention passes from hearing phrases to dynamics because the phrase disappeared. By effectively controlling for the dynamics, he's made them as structural as the number of bars. In the deepest sense, the passage has been conceived with external dynamics in mind. My guess is, had he not indicated crescendo and decrescendo, the musical intelligence of performers would start a tradition of playing it exactly how he has, because it would sound pointless. Although I'm sure you can easily imagine what strange interpretations would disfigure the piece, even after the correct idea was arrived at. Fortunately, Beethoven made himself clear. At this time of his life, a lot of his pieces are built on a repeating motive, and one marvels that he never sounds redundant. One of the secrets is this clever use of dynamics and its timing. And if he is on occasion a little too repetitive, go to YouTube and type in Beethoven Beyond the Fringe. And I think you'll agree Dudley Moore has more than made up for Beethoven's ever-lengthening periods in a finale. Just remember to come back here. The very next period in the symphony is a great example of the second type, internal dynamics. Here's Beethoven's sunlit oboe inviting the other instruments to join in. In the first four bars, the oboes begin a period accompanied by the horns and cellos. One, two, three, four. Over the next four bars, the clarinet and bassoon join in as a dance begins with the two sections of violins and the violas. Then finally the flutes and double basses enter, filling out the full range of the orchestra. It's not that the instruments aren't playing louder, too. They are. But the main effect is the pileup of instruments. You can hear how the internal dynamics in this passage are timed by periods, just as the external dynamics are in the previous one. If we now add the four bars leading in, where the repeating motive ascended from the violins to the clarinet and finally to the oboe, we get over 28 bars some of the happiest music in existence.
In the last episode, I mentioned that because we were looking at an opera, we already knew what Puccini's music is aiming to describe. The image he's trying to accompany was not only clear, but his guide to many musical choices was the drama happening on stage. That's theater music. The symphony is another genre. It's not clear what a symphony is supposed to, quote, mean in this sense. It's music for music's sake. Richard Wagner gave us a term we still use to describe this. He called it absolute music, music without a narrative behind it. Remember those absolute vodka ads where they changed the word vodka to something else? I wish they'd do one with Beethoven and call it absolute music. Wagner's face would be even better. But since Beethoven actually told us what he's trying to describe, the Sixth Symphony sits somewhere in between theater music and absolute music. Some choices have been made with extra musical ideas in mind, but not to the same extent as Puccini's. This middle place is called programmatic or program music, instrumental music with a suggested story or narrative behind it. That's program with two M's and an E. You can say the music's explicitly telling a story in an opera and implicitly telling it in program music. Beethoven's aim was to evoke with music the same moods and sensations experienced outdoors in these settings, not to mimic their actual sounds with instruments, as might be the case on stage. It's only descriptive enough to suggest the feeling, although there is one spot at the end of the second movement where Beethoven actually imitates the nightingale with the flute, the quail with the oboe, and the cuckoo bird with the clarinet. In the score, Beethoven actually writes the name of the birds next to their notes. It's hard to find pieces from the time of the Enlightenment, specifically from the mid-18th century onwards, where the dynamics create the effect almost entirely. But from before that time, there are plenty. For instance... the spring concerto from Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. The back and forth of the loud and soft phrases gives it another kind of symmetry, an echo effect, or like two people in conversation. The softer phrase sounds like a response and not a repetition only because it's played softer. In other words, the dynamics are structural in a very different way than they were in the Beethoven example. 
Rather than give shape to the sentences themselves, here they separate them into sentences. It seems that the period is the two loud phrases, only each one of them gets an echo. Again, it's hidden in plain sight. All this would flatten to meaningless repetition if you remove the dynamic change. You'll notice this melody is not in four counts, but in six in the first pair of phrases and seven in the answering pair. But it's one of the purest cases where dynamics are isolated and give meaning. One, two, three, four, five, six. Echo. Two. I'm not going to nitpick here that the first phrase is longer than its repeat by its last two notes. If you did notice this and wonder why it's not so obvious, it's because the strong beats are satisfied, and it's at the end, right after the rest point in the phrase, so it doesn't stand out. This shows just how important the stresses in the phrase are. Musetta's Waltz from La Boheme was an updated version of an early 19th century convention of Italian opera. Again, you might want to listen to episode 2 for that discussion. To bring the curtain down, everyone stops to sing, beginning with one person until everyone's singing. This was called the pezzo concertato, which means something like set piece. Full discussion is for another day, but the feature of it that concerns dynamics is the groundswell, used with such great humor by Rossini. It's a steady crescendo memorable enough that it pops up even in overtures, like in the one to the Barber of Seville. This music makes everyone smile because it's easy to follow. It's slow and inevitable, but racing away at the same time. This is how Rossini accompanies his progressively confused characters to our delight. We're in on the joke he's playing on them. For instance, here at the start of Act One of The Barber of Seville. Count Almaviva in disguise has hired a group of musicians to accompany him as he serenades his beloved at dawn beneath her balcony. He hopes, literally, to get the dynamics right. To wake her, but to remain inaudible to her guardian, Dr. Bartolo. When told to leave silently, the musicians make a huge racket thanking their employer for having paid them so well, leaving the frustrated Count shouting, Damn you all! Leave quietly! The groundswell Rossini puts under this is the perfect accompaniment to the Count's humiliated ambition. Thank <laughs> you. 
There's a saying that there are two different kinds of smart people. I think it originates with Winston Churchill's mother. After dining with both William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli, she said, When I left the dining room after sitting next to Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. But when I sat next to Disraeli, I left feeling that I was the cleverest woman. That description fits Rossini. His music doesn't attempt any domination of the audience. You don't get a sense that he's bigger than you the way you do with Wagner or Brahms or even Beethoven. You leave his operas feeling that you got the point to everything. Occasionally, this makes people sneer at Rossini as shallow. In fact, his music is quite subtle. The crescendo in the overture is an external type, as the instruments are playing louder like the chorus we just heard, not piling up. By the way, this overture wasn't written for the Barber of Seville. Rossini had used it twice before in his operas Aureliano in Palmyra, as well as the decidedly not-comic Elisabetta about Elizabeth I of England. This is why the overture's music is nowhere to be found in the Barber of Seville itself, minus a few strokes, about which more in a few minutes, but makes appearances in the finales of both of those other operas, which are also pretty impressive. Apparently, the original overture got lost, and Rossini just substituted the one he had used twice before. But the general mood fits the Barber of Seville very well, since Rossini never went far from cheerful even at his most serious. The groundswell plays another neat trick in the opera, shortly after the entrance of the main character, Figaro. This is an amazingly clever piece, and so memorable that it's hard to focus on what comes after. Unlike the overture, this groundswell is a case of internal dynamics. Rossini adds instruments as it goes on, and there's a very good reason for it. It begins with just a few woodwinds and strings chirping away softly with this four-bar phrase. One, two, three, four. With each four-bar phrase, new instruments come in, like the period with the oboe in Beethoven's Pastoral. At the end of them, as if adding a kind of musical punctuation, like a comma separating the phrases, Figaro gives a snatch of his signature patter from offstage. One, two, three, four. Two, three, four. Two, three, four. Two, three, four. This is why the crescendo is an internal type. 
The fewer the instruments at the beginning, the easier it is to hear Figaro from backstage. One has to remember that orchestras were not in sunken pits at that time in Italy. They were right in front of the audience on the ground floor. They would have been much louder and could easily drown out a backstage voice. Figaro's voice gets, quote, nearer as the orchestra fills out. Whether he actually changes his position in the wings is another matter, but he doesn't need to. The effect is hearing him approaching in one of those narrow, echo-filled Spanish streets towards the open square on stage. Then, at the top of the crescendo, he finally makes his entrance. Just count the number of things accomplished by this one crescendo. Firstly, it allows us to hear Figaro backstage due to the reduced sound of the beginning. Secondly, it makes a musical depiction of his physical approach in the orchestra. We can't see Figaro yet, so Rossini lets our ears see what our eyes can't. Thirdly, it gives us the unmistakable sense that the personality about to enter is somewhat important arguably the most interesting character of the opera. Figaro is the barber in the title, after all. It provides the singer a moment to shine. Fourthly, Figaro's character in the story is drawn in the music and precedes his entrance. The quick-witted barber who knows everyone, all the town gossip, whose news travels everywhere in Seville and is sought after by all. And fifthly, Aesthetically, the groundswell is a match for the others in the opera, like the chorus and the first act finale. All these impressions directly relate to the dynamics, although this passage does a lot more than just this if we consider what the other elements are doing in it too. We'll return to it later in the series. If the instruments have to be fewer for us to hear Figaro before he enters, is there a reason why the overture's crescendo is by external dynamics? there may be. The possible reason is that at the time, overtures weren't played after everyone's seated like today. The overture was the cue for the theater doors to open and let everyone take their seats, and at the same time get a taste of the melodies they'd hear that night. There were no records. The more chances of getting your tunes into people's minds and turning them into earworms, the better. The overture was half-advertising, which is pretty wild. It doesn't make much sense to start a crescendo beginning with only a few instruments if it would be inaudible by the midpoint of the overture, in the din of throngs of people chatting and finding their seats. In this situation, it's better to have everyone playing at the start and get louder. The difference of texture that separates the external and internal types that we talked about before is decisive. Could this be what Rossini was thinking here? It wouldn't make a difference on this particular point which opera it was the overture to. A painfully practical reason might be made to serve an artistic one. 
Audiences also talked throughout performances, listening sometimes when their favorite singers were on stage. We now keep silent throughout, that's our culture, except for applause. The ambient noise in the theater also explains the alarming frequency with which so many numbers in opera of this period begin with that cliché, ta-da, which, have you noticed, never has any relation to the music that follows it? For example... This is Count Almaviva's hired musical accompaniment from Act One. Why on earth would he want a loud crash to begin his rise and shine serenade? The purpose of this loud chord was likely to tell the audience that an aria is beginning, and they might want to chat a little less and listen for the next few minutes. So this quaint theatrical relic, something often there for no reason besides its dynamic, continues to make announcements for silence in an afterlife where it no longer needs to. Though it's still beautiful, it's evolved into charming obsolescence. It's like the vestigial wings of the Galapagos cormorant, which can't fly but has wings and dries them all the same as though it could. Only the analogy breaks down in that it's not the music that has evolved, but the culture of opera that's evolved around it. Rossini and his contemporaries, had they been writing today, might not have written it so regularly. But it's likely that Rossini had to shut the audience up first so that Figaro's backstage patter could be heard in that timed four-bar phrase by four-bar phrase crescendo. And that means the burst from the orchestra beginning his aria had the effect of shutting up the audience too. Rossini is apparently obvious, but don't let that fool you. Listen closely and he's as refined a musical feast as truffled chicken and champagne. Anyone familiar with the rest of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony knows that the third, fourth, and fifth movements follow without interruption. There's no place to applaud. Furthermore, like the first two movements, each of these has a title, given by Beethoven himself, for some scene of nature he wanted to conjure up through sound. The fourth is a fast movement titled Thunderstorm. The humid wind carrying the first drops of rain, the ominously darkening sky, and the sudden crack of thunder have, for me, never been better captured in music.
The fifth movement is a leisurely paced and very pastoral sounding one called Shepherd's Song, Joyous Thanksgiving After the Storm, where it doesn't take much to imagine drops of rain falling off soaked branches in the sun. The transition between them, this place where normally a silence between two movements would be, is a depiction of a storm moving away. Beethoven has written many storm-like movements and many song-like movements. It wouldn't be any less like a storm, or any less like after the storm, to end the fourth movement and begin the fifth quietly, as usual. By having this scenic picture progressing in the mind, though, Beethoven's movements follow without interruption like nature itself. He creates a sound picture of the storm dying away, with a huge decrescendo where this silence between movements would have been. But this sets two opposing tasks against each other. The first is that by not stopping, he needs to change from a fast movement to a moderately flowing one in a noticeable enough way that makes the change of movement clear, in other words, to fulfill the requirements of form for a symphony. The periods ostensibly have to be clear enough that sections are balanced and satisfy the purely musical considerations if one is thinking symphony. The second is the depiction of the receding storm, a programmatic idea that has no clear form or shape. When does a thunderstorm end exactly? It certainly doesn't do it four bars at a time. So the question is, how do you organize music that has a point at which both an end and a new beginning is clear enough not to compromise the form of a symphony, but also sounds gradual enough to be believable as a storm. I'm mentioning this difference of genre because the storm image being essayed here is a cliché of 19th century opera. Composer after composer has written storm music for operas, and comparison with the pastoral symphony is illuminating, especially as many of them sound like they're directly influenced by Beethoven's storm. But because there's stage business in the theater, much of the effect can be done visually. In a symphony, there is no visual help, Here's Rossini's from The Barber of Seville. I promised before to say how some of the borrowed overtures music made it into the opera, some of the licks made it into the storm, and many are from Beethoven.
Beethoven is universally known as a master of absolute music and the superlative composer of the symphony. He's almost as universally known not to be among the great opera composers. But from the climax of the fourth movement, the programmatic height of the storm, these 37 bars, in my opinion, have a dramatic inspiration an opera composer can only envy. that, the last movement begins suspended, just as weather would brighten gradually after a storm. Complete with lightning flashes fading into the horizon, the clouds parting, the sun coming out, the shepherd piping, and the chirp of birds as the fifth movement begins. It's an external decrescendo. Amazingly, it's done mostly four bars at a time. Even though the length of the phrases is the last thing on your mind at this point, its flow still comes from a predictable four-count length. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. How observant must Beethoven have been on his walks? We've all seen a thunderstorm and know the experience, but how many of us have paid such close attention to what a thunderstorm in the distance feels like as it retreats? Especially miraculous is not only the indistinct rumble of the double basses and cellos in the final bars, so evocative of the thunder in the distance, but also their sudden disappearance beneath the sustained strings and then that impossibly beautiful melody in the oboes, the change of mood when sunlight peaks out of a blue clearing in the clouds.
and the fifth movement has long begun by the time the first period, with a pair of four-bar phrases, forms. You can smell the earth in this music, and ever since I heard it, I've loved thunderstorms because they remind me of this movement. Even though I know I'm taking the genuine article as a reminder of an artistic recreation, but in inclement weather, I always think the spirit of the great Ludwig is near. Vincenzo Bellini, after hearing it for the first time, said it's as beautiful as nature itself. Beethoven's personality has somewhat overshadowed another composer of great charm, and who's equal to him in many respects. The young Beethoven studied with Joseph Haydn in Vienna, and at first they didn't get along as well as student and teacher might. But then, how many teachers are Haydn and how many students are Beethoven? Haydn was by nature a little more conservative than the revolutionary Beethoven. Even as a child, Haydn was neat and cleaned up, and though he was known to be a practical joker, he was every bit as orderly, polite, and diplomatic as Beethoven was disheveled, rude, and disagreeable. Beethoven biographer Maynard Solomon says that Haydn, in a moment of irritation, once called Beethoven an atheist. The difference between the two men is audible in their music. Although both had a good sense of humor, there is so much evidence of the prankster in Haydn's music that you could deduce this side of his personality even if you knew nothing biographical about him. He was born on April 1st, by the way, or March 31st. We don't know exactly, but it's a wonderful coincidence. Here's an example. This is known as the Surprise Symphony. There's Joseph, clowning around with dynamics, disrupting a perfectly square and memorable period. Incidentally, I never hear that without thinking it must have been on Verdi's mind when he wrote his opera Otello. At the beginning of Act Three, Otello shouts a quite scary unisyllabic va, meaning go away, when reminded of Desdemona's handkerchief. Iago brings him to spy on Cassio and tells him to look carefully at his expression, gestures, reactions, for signs of his alleged intimacy with Desdemona, further raising Otello's blood pressure. Then he adds sadistically, Be patient, or the proof will escape you. And remember the handkerchief. That does the trick. Otello vents with that one syllable, saying he'd hardly need any reminder of that. And whenever I hear that, I always think of the Surprise Symphony. 
by this time Verdi had some idea how to portray a character. One chord tells of the long, festering rage and anxiety Otello's been through. That's not bad. The difference between these two is how the contrast of dynamic is set up, and it has everything to do with rhythm and phrase in a symphony versus an opera. The four stresses of a four-bar phrase are not exactly equal. There's a strong one, a weaker two, a strong three, and a weaker four. The half counts are weaker still and fall away from the stresses. One and two and three and four and. The symmetry doesn't just make the length predictable, but also the sense of tension and relaxation. Generally speaking, the first beat is the most tense, has the most energy, and the fourth beat is the most relaxed. Haydn's tune follows the pattern exactly, and you can hear it resting on the fourth stress. One, and, two, and, three, and, four, and, one, and two, and three, and rest. The surprise is the unpredictability that a chord would arrive on the and of the fourth count. The period had just finished, and we had relaxed our attention based on the rest point we were led to expect. The dynamic change puts energy where repose should be or makes a dissonance where a consonance should be. But in Verdi's opera, Otello's reaction does this completely out of time. There is no phrase of four or any number of bars. The tension is in the story rather than the music. It builds as we're absorbing Iago's manipulation of Otello, and reaches a climax when he whispers the hypercharged word, handkerchief. The lack of phrase rhythm actually helps this, if it's done right, we should be focused and ready to be startled. We're not even paying attention to Otello. We're waiting for what Iago is going to say next when we're slammed by Otello's chord. And that releases the tension. There couldn't be a simpler way to put us into Otello's mind than to let us imagine what Iago is telling him to think and then make us jump to feel what Otello is feeling. We're transferred in one chord from enjoying a villain seeding his poison to his victim's rage. There's a certain equivalence in planning a dynamic contrast in these two examples if one considers the difference between absolute music, where the period orders things, and a theatrical context where a period might even be dispensed with altogether. Iago had finished, like Haydn's melody, and was about to leave when he adds the afterthought, and remember the handkerchief. The thought of taking innocent life reminds one of the birth of it, and back to Haydn. Based loosely on the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, Haydn's oratorio The Creation is neither theatrical nor a kind of programmatic music because it's not purely instrumental. In the 17th century, the Catholic Church prohibited theatrical performances during Lent, which meant a hiatus for the opera house. Oratorios were works for chorus, soloists, and orchestra always on a biblical subject, but performed without any acting or staging, thus avoiding theatrical improprieties or impieties. 
operas could get pretty gory no matter how exalted the moral of their stories at the end of the night. The biblical subject matter of oratorio made it possible to perform in church to make up for the Lenten operatic fast. Out of this tradition has come works we can't live without. Haydn's creation is a late example of it. The text of the creation ends with chapter 2 of Genesis, perhaps meaningfully for the time, because it's with the first line of the third chapter that the serpent makes his appearance. The creation is a musical rendering, in other words, of the glory of the creation of God, earth, heaven, nature, plant, animal, and man, and not the temptation of sin or the fall from grace. It's appropriate for a world that was increasingly secular, turning away not from God but from the divine right of kings, was accepting of science towards discovering God's works, but hadn't yet encountered Charles Darwin. It's hard not to think of the genial Haydn as the right composer for religious music in the age of Thomas Paine. It opens with an orchestral introduction called The Representation of Chaos, out of which, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. For about six minutes, one could mistake it for Beethoven in an agonized mood, or Wagner in one of his characters' dying religious ecstasies. What makes it evocative of chaos is precisely the almost non-existent sense of phrase and period. The four-bar phrase is nowhere apparent. 
nor is a phrase of any number of bars recognizable as a phrase. There's only some regularity by repetition. But repetition doesn't automatically make a phrase. There's just motion and a lot of drama and poignancy in the sonority of the orchestra. Although it sounds as if at any moment a phrase or period might finally emerge, the music it adds up to is almost shapeless. For the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Bible's opening line is given to a bass soloist, as might happen in an opera. But then the text indicates a very significant movement, as the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, which marks the entrance of the chorus. And with it, Haydn begins to write fragments that sound like phrases.
And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Music convey light so bright it would synesthetically blind the eyes? And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, sings the tenor soloist. The geneticist Steve Jones said this would be one of his eight favorite records to take with him on a desert island. He hears this moment as the Big Bang. That's the effect it has. There certainly was light then. I can't think of a greater contrast in music, with dynamics or otherwise, that remains music and is more than the sum of its contrasting parts. Again, the text and the conception allows for no limit in contrast of loud and soft. Near silence before the light, all sound after it. I've read that audiences at the time used to burst into applause at this moment. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. As God created regularity in the day, so Haydn reserved a regular period until the first formal number. As it comes to a close, Haydn placed a beautifully singing period of two four-bar phrases at the words, a new created world springs up. Haydn's last public appearances, the creation was played to enormous applause. 
Beethoven was present and is reported to have bent down and kissed the old man. Whether you believe in the creation story at the beginning of Genesis, or accept the explanation of modern science for the Big Bang, it's hard to know where to go when you've reached the origin of everything. So let's end with the universe, as all of us eventually will. But while we're here, we can take pleasure in that music's descriptive limits reach as far as science tells us about the objective world without, as the limits of its emotional reach is as unknown as religious experience in our subjective world within, and by such simple means as dynamics and the play of four-bar phrases and periods. Once again, thanks for listening. I'm Sina Kiai. This is Thinking in Music.